brand new series today, Out, out of Darkness, um, a, a Journey Through the Book of, of Exodus. So if you're not real familiar with your Bible, you've got Genesis and then Exodus. That's, that's like where it begins. And, and it's where the story, really, um, of, of, of Jesus starts. Like the story of Jesus starts in Genesis chapter 3. Um, we, we hear a, about this person who's going to be born of a woman and, and is going to be wounded by the, the devil, but who eventually conquers the devil. That's Genesis chapter 3. And, and so the story of the Bible is really the story of, of Jesus. And, and Exodus is part of that story. And, and it's this beautiful, redemptive story that actually starts out in kind of the same place that maybe a lot of you started out in, um, in, in kind of a dark place until Jesus comes. And, uh, and, and so I'm excited to, to share it with you. Um, and, and we'll be, we're going to start this week and then next Sunday, New Life Drama Company will, will be here. Super excited about them coming. And then we'll pick up this series the week after that and, and it'll take us through the end of October. So we're going to be on this for about seven, uh, it'll be eight weeks, but seven, seven weeks of, of messages. So as we, as we start off this morning, I want you to think about a time... The time in your life, um, maybe it was a recent time in your life, and, and maybe it was a long time ago when you were a kid, but think about a time in your life where you were in desperate need and you called for help. Now, maybe you were sick and, and you needed help. Uh, I, I remember um, being, uh, I don't remember, 10 or 11 years old or something like that, and I had gotten uh, acute appendicitis, and... Um, I, I remember it vividly because it was one of the only Sundays in my life growing up that I didn't have to go to church because uh, I, was, I was on the couch, <coughs> I was on the couch all night, all, all morning Sunday, um, and uh, dad, dad went to church, <coughs> excuse me, um, dad went to church and mom stayed home with me, and that was a big deal for, you know, the preacher's kid and wife not to go to church. And I remember after church, like I had to wait to die until after church because dad wasn't there. So I, I was waiting for church to get over and dad comes home and, and another, a woman from church comes home, uh, comes to the house as well because she, she wanted to check on me. I don't know what she thought she was going to do. But um, she was unhappy that she came to see me because I remember her coming to the couch and she leaned over the edge of the couch where my feet were and I had a pain and I kicked her in the face. Uh, and uh, anyway, she probably got me back a lot after that. But, um, but anyway, rushed to the hospital. Doctor said, if you'd have waited 30 minutes, his appendix would have ruptured. It wouldn't have been bad. I'm like, well, people got to hear about Jesus. So um, anyway, so I, I survived that. But I, I remember, um, you know, being in that intense pain and, and wanting mom or dad to help me. Like, give me something. Help me take this pain away. And, and, and maybe you've been in one of those positions. And maybe it wasn't like pain from an, an illness. Um, maybe it was pain from, maybe it was relational um, pain. Maybe it was something else going on in your life and you were hurt and you were in need and you were desperate and you called out um, for help. I, I was thinking about the times in our lives when, when, when we do, like when a, when a child is in trouble, it is natural, it is instinctual for them to cry out 
for help. And, and how does that work? Well, if, if there, this is going to make some folks mad, so don't email me. Um, if, if it's emotional trouble, we, we call for mom. If we lose an arm, we call for dad. Like, that's just the, the help. Like, my kids knew that if they lost a limb and they called for mom, she was going to be no help at all. <laughs> like, she would come in and go, oh, your, your arm is off. Uh, and then out the door, and she was going to call me anyway. So that would have been no help at all. So they, you know, kids learn who to call when there's a, a problem. And, and But that's just an instinctual thing, right? When you're a kid and you need help, you, you need help with something, you call mom or dad. When, when, you're, when a high school student or college student gets in over their head, you know, and, and I think all of us did at some point, we made a decision, we did something, and it didn't turn out the way we, we thought, well, we're on the phone to mom or dad, or we're calling the grandparents, or, you know, like, I, I don't know what to do, please help me. When an addict feels the urge to use again, they call their sponsor. When we're scared for our lives, we call the police. And, and so it just seems like from infancy, when we're in trouble, we have this instinctual thing to call for help. And, and unless we learn from our parents or from others, unless we learn otherwise, unless we learn that help isn't going to come when we call, we expect help to come. But what happens when you call for help and the help doesn't, doesn't come? Or, or maybe I should say it this way. What, help, what happens when we call for help and, and it appears to us that the help doesn't come? So if you're, if you're a kid or high school, college student, and you, and you call to parents or grandparents for, for help and, and they don't help, does that mean that they don't care about you? Well, if you're a kid, you're, you're probably going, yes, that's exactly what that means. They don't care about me. If you're a parent on the other side of that, you're, you're like, no, it doesn't. It, it actually may mean that I care a lot about you. And, and you need to figure this out. And that's why maybe, maybe you might feel like the sponsor, like everybody else in your life, has given up on you. Or, or maybe you'll feel like, the, well, I, I called for the police and they didn't come, and so the police are bad. We, we often equate in, in our lives as we deal with the troubles and the desperation and the things that sometimes come in, in our lives, we often equate silence with absence. And so if you're silent in, in my time of need or my desperation, you, you must be absent. And, and so then we go on and we go, well, you must not care. You don't want to be involved. And, and, and we try something else. And, and, and when we, we claim, like, because we're hurting, because there's pain in our lives, because we don't know what to do and we need help, we claim that if you don't help me when I call, you don't care about me. That's the conclusion we go to. And, and, and I think the reality is that that is often the exact opposite of the situation. And, and so let's just jump into the bottom line today because I think it's something we all need to hear when we're in a very dark place. And so the bottom line today is that God may be silent, but he is never absent. God may be silent in in your life. And maybe even today you're here and you're like, I've been asking for this. I've been calling for God to help. I've been, I need, so, need something. And, and, 
and he's not there. Like he's not responding. I don't hear anything. And, and, and often we go, well, since I don't see anything happening, he must not be listening. And, and so he's absent. And, and the reality is, if you've been a Christian for very long, there have probably been times in your life where you have called out to God at, and then felt ignored. You've asked him for help, and the help hasn't come. At least maybe it hasn't come in the way you thought it was going to come. And so you, you go, well, God, God must not care. And, and so in those times, we, we feel distant from God. Like, I, like, I don't know if you've felt this way, but there have been times in my life where I've, I've prayed to God, and, and it just, in, in my head, I just visit, it just feels like, the words are coming out of my mouth and they're like hitting the ceiling and just dropping to the floor. It's just not getting out. And, and oftentimes, my initial thought is, like God is at, God doesn't care. God's not listening. God is absent in, in this because, because my prayers are not reaching him. And so initially, we tend to blame God for that. And so we in, interpret God's silence in regards to whatever situation it is that we're going through, we interpret his silence as his absence. Like I'm, like I'm in this alone. I'm, I'm on my own. I've got to figure this out for myself. And, and so in, in my life, when I've been in those times where I felt like God was silent, what I've come to understand is that the, the God, he might be silent, but it's because he's waiting for me to surrender in some area. And so when I'm praying and I feel like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling and dropping to the floor, that is not about God. <laughs> it's about me. There's an area in, in, in my life that I haven't surrendered. There's a, there's a bitterness or hurt or, or anger or unforgiveness or something that I am holding on to that I haven't released. And so it's my own issues that are causing me to feel like God is, is silent. And, and so he, here's how it kind of plays out in our lives. And I, it's not just in our relationship to God, but I think in our relationship to every other person. When the help we want, when the help we want and the help we get are different, we interpret that as no help at all. And that's kind of a big sentence, but you, you get when the help we want and the help we get are different. So the high school or the college student calls mom and dad and they say, I made a terrible financial decision and I don't know what to do about it. And mom and dad go, I'm sorry, I can't help you. We go, wait a, wait a minute. Well, the help I want and the help you are offering to give me, which is no help at, at all. When they're different, we interpret that. They're like, well, you're not helping at all. And, and mom and dad are going, no, we are helping because we're helping you to never make this mistake again in your life. And, and if we just get, let me just tell you how we function as people. Because, um, you know, maybe some of you had kids, or you're going to have kids or grandkids or whatever. So let me just give you this really beautiful life lesson. If we rescue our children every time, they will keep jumping into the deep end of the pool. 
And so, we, you know, as a parent, I, I, I feel that I want to be there and I want to help them and I want to pull them up and I want to rescue them. And, and, and yet I, I understand that I'm not raising a child, I'm raising a human. And, and they need to learn how to make decisions and, and they need to learn the consequences of those things. And so there are times when we can't rescue them because that's the best for them. Oh, that was, whew, I should write that down. That was pretty good. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this and see what I said. Uh, anyway, so this is good. We, we, need to, we, we, need to, we need to know that. And so the, the parent wants to help their child learn to avoid trouble in the first place. And, and so we, we may not rescue them out of that trouble immediately. The, the, the addict might want help getting their license back after a DUI, but their friends and their family want to help them get clean and live their best life. And so that help might look different. The, the child wants help getting into the cookie jar, but the parent wants to instill healthy eating habits. And so we have to balance those things. And, and so the reality is that help looks different whether you're waiting to get it or you're trying to give it. Help looks different if you're waiting to receive the help or if you're on the outside trying to give help. And and so we have a lot of conflict when there's times of desperation, right? Because the help I want and the help I get may not look the same. And so we have conflict and we go, well, you don't love me because you're not helping me the way I want to be helped. And the other person goes, no, I do love you. That's why I'm not helping you the way you want to be helped because it's not going to help you. And so it's easy for us, I think in, in, in our lives now, it's easy for us to interpret God's silence as his absence. But in reality, God may appear silent because he's just waiting for you to surrender. Like there's an area of your life that, that just that isn't working. Like you haven't surrendered. You haven't given it up. You've got to learn something from God. And so it's not that he's silent. It's that he's just, he's patient. And he's waiting for you to surrender. And so um, in this new series, we're, we're kind of going on a journey with the Israelite people. Um, a, a journey that's going to take us from uh, forced labor in Egypt to freedom. In, in the promised land. And so that's a, that's, that's a big difference. That's a big journey um, from slavery to, to freedom. Um, but, but to get there, we've got to know the backstory. We've got to know the backstory for the Israelites. So we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 1, uh, verse 1, right, right off the bat. So we're going to get through um, chapter 1 today, and we're going to hit a little bit of chapter 2. So here's how Exodus 1 starts out. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, now Jacob, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're the patriarchs, the Israelite people. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's how we get the nation name. And so they came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Those were the um, 11 sons that came with him from Canaan to Egypt. They were all the descendants of Jacob. There were uh, 70 plus there. And then Joseph, his 12th son, is actually his 11th son in birth order, um, was already in Egypt. So some of you may remember the story of Joseph if you're in uh, vacation Bible school or, um, or kids church, Sunday school or, or whatever. Um, Joseph was a bit spoiled 
growing up. He was daddy's favorite. And so his 10 older brothers conspired together. They trafficked him to to Egypt. Like human trafficking has been going on for a long time. Um, And so that happened. They they sold him as a slave to Egypt. And um, Joseph was was there. But for the rest of his life, he was there from, um, from... like teen years um, until he died. He was in Egypt. And, and Joseph learned a lot there, right? He, he goes down there. He gets to sold into Potiphar's house. He becomes the number one in charge of the whole house. And then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and then blames him and then gets thrown in prison. And he's there for a long time. And eventually goes into um, Pharaoh's. He interprets some dreams. And, and, and eventually in the story, he's made into the second in command in all of, of Egypt. And, and, and so... Um, that was really like God's providence um, because Joseph learned a lot. He learned um, patience. He learned how to trust God. He learned humility. He really needed to learn the lesson about humility. And, and he learned about forgiveness as well. And, and then God used Joseph as number two in all of Egypt to save all of Israel. He saved the whole nation of Israel through Joseph. Because there was a, a, a seven years of plenty and then there were seven years of famine in the whole Middle East. And eventually, uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, Israel, and all of his 11 brothers had to come down to Egypt to survive. And so God saved the Israelite people through the plenty of Egypt and Joseph's uh, position there. And, and like things were great. Like they came down, if you know the story, they came down from Canaan. They were introduced to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave them the best. They said, take whatever land you want. And they took the land of Goshen because there was uh, lots of grass and the Israelites were shepherds. They had flocks and herds and, and the Egyptians didn't like that. And, and so they lived in, in Goshen and everything was great um, for, for quite a while, for a couple hundred years the Israelites, like they, they grew, they had lots of kids, they just, the nation grew, everything was going perfect. In fact, like you look at the story and you're like, man, this must be God's hand. Like this must have been what God wanted, I guess, um, because everything is going just the way we expected it to go. Our families are prosperous. Um, we're protected by Egypt. Like nobody's going to come attack us because Egypt is right here and we've got good relations with them. And so, man, we're just in the perfect um, place. And uh, like Egypt's wealth and they traded back and forth. And Joseph, like, like his fame and, and, and fortune with Egypt was a benefit to the whole nation. And, and it was just, it was, it was fantastic for a while. But in the beginning of that story, we're given a little bit of a, of, of a nugget about what's going on. Because Joseph, when he talks to his family about that, he says, be careful about telling the Egyptians what you do, that, that you're shepherds. Because the Egyptians valued industry. They, they valued knowledge. They were about um, building and constructing and they were figuring things out and this big plans and stuff. And, and so shepherds to the people of Egypt were like way lower class citizens. And in fact, it was detestable. I think the Bible uses that word. It was detestable for an Egyptian to be in the presence of a, of a shepherd, a lowly shepherd, rancher person. And so we, we're given this little bit of information in the story that is really going to come um, into play later. 
So just tuck that away for a little bit. Let's go to the next um, few verses. The people of Israel, they were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. There's a whole lot of words that all say the same thing, right? Fruitful, increased, multiplied, exceedingly strong. Like It seems like the author is trying to make sure that we understand what's going on. The nation itself just kind of exploded with growth so that the land eventually was filled with them. So the land of Goshen in the northeast corner of Egypt uh, over the Gulf of, of, of Aqaba and, the, and the, the Reed Seas across the top. Anyway, if you know your geography, which I don't. Geography is terrible, but I know that part of the world. So uh, anyway, that's where they were in relation to, to Egypt. And, and so any nation that was going to attack Egypt from the east would have to come through Goshen, through the land where the Israelites lived in order to get to Egypt. And so things were really good for the Israelites for a while. They, they were growing and life was, was great. Everything was going just like they thought. Um, and, and then the patriarchs died. So um, uh, Israel died Jacob died, and then Joseph, and then all his 11 brothers, they died. And the tribes were still there, and they were still going great, um, but their leaders had passed away. And so they had land, they had plenty of food, they had freedom. Like, everything was going great. No one again messed with them because Egypt was their ally. They lived peaceful, productive, prolific lives, and they grew as a nation to millions of people. And so anybody looking at the nation of Israel here in this place would go, you must be exactly where God wants you to be because everything is going perfect for you. Everything's coming up roses. There's no problems whatsoever. They just, like we use the term, they just got fat and happy. They didn't have to do anything. Life was just great. And then things changed like they always do. And so look what happens in the next few verses. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. So all the things that Joseph had done for Egypt, new king comes in, he's like, wipes it out, right? Doesn't know anything. And so he said to the Egyptian people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So we should deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, which they already were. And then if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us and then escape from the land. Oh, there's more. Therefore, the Egyptian people set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramesses, and the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, so just like the author was telling us how uh, great it was for the Israelites to be in Egypt, they, they grew and they increased and all of this kind of stuff, it kind of seems like the exact opposite now, right? We're getting a different kind of, of, of story. And, and you look, it said um, that the, the, the people, oh, where did it go? I don't remember where it, it went. Oh, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people Israel. 
Okay, so the, the, we started out in, in verse 8. It said a new king came along, and he looked at Israel differently than any of the other kings before him. He looked at Israel, and he was like, hmm, if an enemy attacks, Israel might join with them and overthrow us. Here's the interesting thing that's, that's going on. Um, Egypt had a standing military at the time. In fact, one of the greatest militaries uh, of the time. Like, like nobody messed with Egypt. This is huge. Standing military. They were trained. They had weapons. They had armor, shields. They had chairs. They had hundreds of chairs. Like this was one of the greatest fighting forces of the day in Egypt. Do you know what the Israelites had? Pitchforks and rocks. They were farmers and ranchers. They were not trained. They did not have a military. They were not trained in military, but they didn't know anything about how to fight. And this new king comes to power in Egypt, and, and, he, and he's like, boy, the Israelites might join our enemies with what? They're going to throw dirt at you? Like, this is... I want you to understand, this is completely ridiculous. This idea that Israel could do, like they had a lot of people, but they didn't know anything. Egypt would have slaughtered them. In fact, it's the very reason that Egypt was able to overpower all of these millions of people that the Israelites had grown into because the Israelites didn't know what they were doing when it came to war. And so Egypt easily came in because Egyptians had the swords and the spears and the military and they marched in and they just took over. It was, it was martial law in Israel. Almost overnight. It was incredible. But how did it start? The king said, we need to be afraid of the Israelites. Even though there was absolutely no reason for the Egyptians to fear them. Let's go back into history, um, much more recent history. There was a, a, a short guy with a funny mustache named Hitler who pretty much said the same thing, right? There's this group of people that, that pose no threat to us whatsoever, but we should fear them. And they oppressed them, and then they obliterated them. And this is Egypt, right? The king came into power. He said, these people, we need to fear these people. The Egyptians were like, oh, my goodness, I guess we should fear them. And so it was this whole big thing that, that broke out. The, the new king and his fear of Israel would ultimately work out for Israel's benefit, though. And, and, and so, um, Julie, I'm going to skip down. Let's go to Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, okay, so, so if you finish out the rest of chapter 1, you're given an example of the ruthlessness of the Pharaoh. Um, he tried to sneakily kill all the baby boys of Israel. He told the, the midwives to um, strangle or suffocate the babies when they were first born and then tell the, tell the mothers that, that they had a stillborn child or something happened and they didn't, they didn't survive. Um, but that didn't, that didn't work, right? God saw that that didn't work. And so, the, so Pharaoh commanded all the families, if you give birth to a boy, 
you are required to throw him into the Nile to kill him. And if you don't, your whole family will be killed. And, and so guess what happens? You have a mom and dad who give birth to a, to a boy that they love and they want to keep. And another family member says, if you don't kill him, I'm going to tell Pharaoh and we're all going to die. And so they pitted family members against one another in killing their own people. Like this is a story that is repeated multiple, multiple times throughout history and even today. So here's what happened. During those many days, the king of Egypt dies. So we're in chapter 2, and the author wants us to know that the king that was in power in chapter 1 that caused all the fear of Israel, he is no longer in power, and a new king comes up, but that new king keeps the same policies. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their, gro- heard their groaning, heard. and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So a few things I want you to catch in, in this passage. The, the first one is, did you notice that the Israelites did not groan or cry out to God? The, the author doesn't say they cried out to God or they groaned to God. They just groaned and cried out. And it actually says that they, they cried out for help, but they didn't cry out for help to God, but their cry came up to God, and God heard. What I think the author is trying to to help us understand is that God was actively listening for his people, even though the people weren't actively seeking him. And so there's this different thing that's going, going on here. The Israelite people, by this time, were not people anymore. They, they were property, they were producers, they were subhuman, and so they could be treated inhumanly, and they finally cry out. They don't know what to do. And I think they're crying out to sympathetic Egyptians. I think there were Egyptians, just like there were Germans and Austrians, who were trying to help the Jews during that sick period of uh, world history. I think there were Egyptians that tried to help them. I think there were other people that maybe tried to help them. But, and they were just looking for help anywhere, but God is the one who finally shows up. And, and, and so God heard their heart, and he heard their pain, and he heard their struggle, even though they weren't seeking help from him. Here's what we need to know. God knows your struggle, even when he appears to be silent. He isn't. He may just be waiting for you to surrender. And so here's the thing about God. God will not force you to follow him. There's a reason we're told in the Bible to ask and to seek and to knock. It's because God wants that movement on our part. And so the people of Israel were were happy even though they weren't home. We need to understand that. God wanted them to be in the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. They were in Egypt, and they were like, hey, this sounds like a good promise to us. Whenever we try to choose the best place for us, things don't go well. 
And so look, if you have been or are in desperate times, if you feel like like you're in the dark in your life, like you're crying out to to God, crying out for help, and you're not receiving it um, the way you want to, I want you to hear this um, this morning. You, You need to know, first of all, that God hears. God hears because he's listening, and he is never far. Scripture said he's never far from the broken hearted. He's near to them, and so God is near to you, and he hears your prayers and your cries and your your groanings. Secondly, um, God knows. God knows what's going on in your life. I love how that chapter two ends just with that, those two words. God knows. God knows what's going on. He, He doesn't just know what's going on. He knows what's best for you, even if you don't know it. And, and, and finally, God cares cares about what's going on in your life. He, he cares. Now, look, you may have gotten yourself into that problem, but God cares that you're there. And so don't mistake his silence for his absence, because he may just be waiting for you to fully surrender to him. And sometimes surrender doesn't happen until we realize that we're slaves to whatever has control over us. Until we come to the point that we recognize our own slavery to our addiction, to our relationships, to our jobs, to our children, to to whatever it is has control or mastery over us. We're slaves to those things, and God wants to bring us to a place of freedom. And so if there is an area of your life that you need to surrender to God in, like that's the first step. That's what needs to happen. Maybe there's something you need to give up in your life. Maybe there's something you need to take up, like God's waiting for you to surrender to do this positive thing. It's not just about getting rid of things. It's not just about putting off the old self. It's about putting on the new self. And so maybe you need to take up something. Um, Maybe, and, and I'm sorry, mom, but maybe you just need to shut up and get out of the way. Mom just doesn't like it when I use that word, but anyway... Mom doesn't need to shut up. Don't, this is not what I'm saying. Don't, not, don't mistake. That's no, not what I'm saying uh, at all. Uh, but <laughs> I know. Maybe, 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 maybe I need to shut up in order to hear God. Maybe that's the, the thing. And so where is your help going um, to come from? Look, when, when you're in the darkness, your only hope is the light. I want you to think about that. If you're in a dark room and there's no light at all, you can find all kinds of amazing things in that room. But unless you find a light switch or a flashlight, none of that other stuff helps. And in our lives, most of our lives, we're going through in the dark and we're finding all of these cool things. Oh, look, I found a Nerf gun or oh, I got a, this thing or that. Oh, these are amazing. I got all these cool things. But if there's no light, they don't help. They don't help. Nothing helps you when you're in the dark except the light. And so let's just end with this, what Jesus says next, uh, this. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so if you think you're in dark times, if you think these are dark times that we're living in, perhaps because of the government, uh, government overreach, perhaps because of your own addictions or maybe broken relationships or financial challenges or physical ailments, whatever your darkness, 
you are not going to find help in the dark. The light has to come. And so cry out to God because he hears and he knows and he cares. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us in the midst of our darkness and our struggle. And God, it must get um, tiring for you to, to see us groping around in the dark and, and finding things and going, oh, maybe this will help. <laughs> and, and it doesn't. Because until the light comes, everything is darkness. And, and so, Father, just like you brought the Israelites out of darkness and slavery in Egypt and you taught them how to live as your people, would you teach us? Would you bring us out of the things that we are slaves to, even if they're things like early in the Israelite time in Egypt, even if they're things that we think we have control over, like the things that we're going to be a slave to tomorrow are the things that are our slave today, and then the role gets changed, and God, you know that, and you're trying to rescue us from that, and so help us to listen, help us to follow, help us to to see that even when you're silent, you are never absent in our lives and you always want the best for us. And so God, help us to find the light in Jesus so that everything else in our lives begins to make sense. Help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, all right, um, part two next Sunday. Hope you, no, part two in two Sundays. New Life Drama Company here next week. Um, Thanks for being here. God bless you. Good to be back. Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central, on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.